Um, If you brought your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to Psalm 32. That's where we're going to be today in Psalm 32. Um, If you don't, uh, if you didn't bring your Bible, there's some underneath the seat in front of you. Um, So go ahead and grab that one and turn over to Psalm 32. If you don't have a Bible, uh, please take that one home with you. Uh, Everybody needs a Bible, right? Um, Psalm 32 is where we're going to be today. Um, uh, Like I said earlier, uh, my name is Ryan and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, Let me find Psalm 32 myself, goodness. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Sedaris Church, and uh, me and my family actually just moved out here to be the the new uh, pastor here at Sedaris, and it's been really fun trying to learn this city that you guys call Seattle, which is an insane city, you know? Uh, I feel like the people who live in Seattle think their roads are normal, you know, like... They, they'll even straight up tell you, they're like, you know what, it's on a grid, it's not that hard. And it's, I come from a city where there's a grid, and this is not a grid, okay? I was just like driving around in my little neighborhood, and I took a wrong turn, and I'm um, in the express lanes on I-5. All of a sudden, like, what's that about? What's that about? Like, this is a crazy city, and it's complicated, and, but don't worry, I'm figuring it out, figuring it out. Um, yeah, eventually. Um, Okay, but we're going to be preaching in Psalm 32 today, and Psalm 32 is about how to be happy. How How to find the happy life is probably a better way to say it. Psalm 32 is about how to find a happy life, how to find a joyful life, and how to find a life that's full of content. That's what this whole psalm is about here. And, um, but here's the deal. Uh, the thing that this psalm tells us also is that the way to that life, the way to that joy, the key, I guess you could say, that opens the door to that life in joy is something that we typically resist. It's, it's going to introduce some hard categories for us. And if you're not a Christian today, these might be some of the categories that you said, you know what, this is why I walked away from Christianity to begin with. These things are, are really hard things to understand and are kind of oppressive and difficult to gut and stomach, you know, and that's why I walked away. Um, <clears throat> but I want to let you know that these categories even make Christians squirm too. They, they even make Christians kind of uncomfortable. And what we're going to see is even David is uncomfortable with these categories. Okay, as he's, this, David is called the man after God's own heart. He's like the uber, super God follower. But these categories even made him uncomfortable too. Okay, so you're in good company today if, if you would say you're just considering Jesus. Okay, these things are sometimes difficult for us to understand. And, and so uh, what I'm asking uh, all of us to do is to press into into these today with me, okay? Because what David is saying is that by these categories, he found life, he found joy, he found contentment, he found fulfillment in this world right now, okay? And it came by these somewhat hard to stomach and difficult categories here, okay? Uh, So just look at it with me here in verse one. Sorry, I'm still trying to figure out this microphone. Um, In verse 1 here, this is David talking about the life that he found, okay? He starts the psalm with his conclusion on the matter. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Okay, so David's talking about the blessed person, and the blessed person can sometimes be uh, an ambiguous phrase that we use um, because uh, we just kind of use it when people sneeze, you know, like, what does that mean? Uh, sometimes uh, in, in Christmas cards, they'll, say, they'll just say blessings at the end, and it's like, 
well, what do you mean by that? You know, blessing is this really ambiguous phrase that our culture has kind of co-opted and used, and even we use it sometimes in really ambiguous ways. And that's okay. I'm not going to harp on how it gets used uh, ambiguously. All I'm saying is David means something very, very specific when he uses the word blessed here. Very specific. And it's this. Happy. The base meaning of the word blessed is happy. So when you see blessed is the one here, he's really just saying happy is the one. In fact, some of the more modern translations that are coming out within the past couple years, they they just throw happy in there instead of blessed. They say happy is the one. And so as David's talking about the person who's found happiness, happiness, joy, fulfillment, and we can see that in how the psalm ends as well. He says, uh, pick it up with me in verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Look at this. Steadfast love surrounds the one. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy. David's found something here that has brought him intense joy and full life. Intense joy and full life, okay? He found the key to it here. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to, what David, we're going to look through what David does in this psalm. And what he does in this psalm is he unpacks his experience to show you, to show all of us what this key is that opened the door to life. And so what we're going to do is we're going to unpack that experience together. And then the the second thing we're going to do is um, the thing about this, this key that opens the door, like I said earlier, it's something we often resist. It's something we resist because there's a couple obstacles in our way, being 21st century Americans. There's a couple obstacles in our way that get in the way for us to pick up this key and use it. Okay, so we're going to unpack the obstacles. There's two obstacles we're unpacking. That's the second thing we're going to do. And then the third thing we're going to do is we're going to look at what this joyful life, what this joyful life actually looks like. What, what, what's actually on the other side of this door. Right now I've been kind of vague and just calling it life and joy because David's been kind of vague here. But what is it? What actually is it, okay? So you got the flow for this morning. We're going to do David's experience. We're going to do a couple obstacles, and then we're going to unpack the fruits, okay? One, two, three. Real, real simple. Okay. All right, so first let's talk about David's experience. David's experience here. He outlines it in verses uh, one through four, okay? So read it with me again. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. As by the heat of summer. And so what David is doing here is he's this is a prayer that he's recounting something that's happened to him in his life. And this is what we're learning here this summer at Sedaris when it comes to prayer and it comes to the Psalms. It's that, it's that prayer and life happen simultaneously. That's why we're doing these Psalms. I know that's kind of like a, well, no, no duh, Ryan. Obviously, these happen at the same time. But we're doing these Psalms here at Sedaris Church this summer because we're, we're trying to see if we can get a vision for how to graft more prayer into our life like David's doing right here. He's going to graft prayer into his life. I think the, the number one way you can make a Christian feel uncomfortable is just by asking them about how their prayer life is going, right? 
<laughs> Everyone is always, I mean, someone asks you that question, you just want to hide in a hole and feel really ashamed, right? I mean, that's my experience. If it's, if it's not yours, maybe, I guess you're doing great. Um, but but what, and so what we're trying to do is catch a vision for how prayer and life can be aligned. And, and what David says here is he's describing his experience here. And what we need to understand about this experience that David is saying is one of these difficult categories that's right here in verse 1 and 2. Transgression, uh, sin, iniquity. David's talking about sin here. He's talking about sin. And, and that can be kind of a, a difficult category for a lot of us to stomach and gut. But what he's doing here, um, he has a Hebrew understanding of the, the nature of sin. And so I just want to give you guys that so we can get a little more clear on what it is. Sometimes it can be confusing as to what we're actually talking about when we're talking about sin. And, and the Hebrew understanding of, of sin that David would have learned about as a little boy uh, goes something like this. Imagine an archer who has a target. Okay, and they set the target up, and then they walk 20, 30 yards away, and they take a bow and arrow, and they try to hit the target. They try to hit a mark on whatever they've set up. And sin to the Hebrews was if that arrow didn't land on the mark. Sin to the Hebrews was missing the mark, that God had, had laid out how to live life, how to live life to the full to the Hebrews. 300 years before David's writing this here, God had laid out how they could live in the world, and sin was missing that mark, either to the right, to the left, the top, the bottom. Sin was missing that mark, okay? And, and this is uh, something that our, our culture sees as somewhat oppressive, right? Like, who is this uh, God to come in and tell us how to live life? Who is this guy to come in and just tell us how to do it? Can't we figure this out for ourselves? And, and, and so one thing that I want to say here is, is that in reality, all of us to have a morality. All of us lean on a morality of this notion of that person is hitting the mark or they're missing the mark based on things that they do or don't do. Everybody has a lens through which they view the world, a lens of morality that says, that's right, that's wrong. And what, the, what David's doing here and what the Christian faith does in lining up with the Hebrew uh, concept of sin is that we look to God to define that morality for us we make a couple of assumptions, okay? I'm, my, my, my history is in, in, in science, in the sciences, and physics, and so I, I love assumptions. Like, if, I, if, if you come to me and, and you're like, hey, you know what, like, I think you're making an assumption here, like, that's my love language. You know, like, like oh yeah, you're right, I am. Like, I don't know if I can make that conclusion without this assumption. But the, the assumption of God being um, able to make our morality goes like this. He created the world and wants what's best for humanity. He created the world and wants what's best for humanity. And so we look to him to define morality for us and the best ways that humanity can flourish. Okay? So, so that's, that's sin. And um, there's two types of sin here. Uh, sins of, of commission. These are things that we do. Uh, so, for example, David, he uh, committed adultery with a woman who was married. Uh, she ended up getting pregnant. And then he killed her husband. He murdered her husband. A lot of sin of commission happening there. Okay, these are things that he did that are against the law of God. There's sins of omission. Um, so, for example, these are things that we don't do that, are, that God calls us to do. And so, for example, with David, um, it's pretty clear that David didn't raise his, uh, some of his kids up in the way of the Lord. 
they turn into some pretty nasty adults. I'm not talking like, ah, uh, he's just kind of a pain in the butt to be around. I'm talking like, this guy like rapes people, okay? So, so it's clear that he had a sin of omission with not leading his kids in the way, the ways of the Lord, okay? Um, and, and so the question with sin, it always gets turned back on us, right? And the question is, can you think of some ways that, that you've missed the mark with God? Some ways that you know God has called us to live in life and that you, you, you shot for it, but you missed. Can you think of some ways that you've missed the mark? But what's really awesome about this psalm right here are these blessing statements on the front end. All the other blessing statements in the Bible, this is a typical format of blessed is the one who does this, blessed is the one who doesn't do this. They're, they're all formulations of blessed is, blessed is the one, happy is the one who hits the mark, but not these ones. These ones say blessed is the one who actually has missed the mark. Blessed is the one who has sinned. David's saying here that, hey, you can still miss the mark and live the blessed life. This is a blessing statement that kind of flies in the face of all the other blessing statements in the Bible. Blessed is the one who has sinned and finds forgiveness here, okay? All right, so read this last line with me because this last line has a theme in it that goes throughout the rest of the psalm, okay? This this last line in verse two. David says, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Deceit. Um, one of my uh, new friends here in Seattle invited me to a softball game this week. And um, I got to that softball game, um, and I quickly realized what the state of affairs was. I walked into kind of a huddle of guys that are all about my size. Um, we're all about 140 pounds, trying our best, okay? And I looked across the field to the other dugout, and I saw them, and they were enormous, and they clearly had a lot of baseball experience. And I, I immediately I knew I that I know exactly how this is going to play out, right? I, we, and we got clobbered. First inning, first inning, the other team puts up nine, nine runs on us. Okay, nine runs, first inning. Um, we, we had great pitching, though. We had great pitching. Uh, but, you know, our, our, our defense was struggling, okay? Um, we, we got absolutely clobbered. And so after they score nine runs on us, we go up to bat. And uh, one guy goes up to bat, he's about my size, and he he's also happens to be wearing uh, Teva sandals, I believe. Uh, these are not normal attire for softball. Um, and so uh, he was wearing these Teva sandals, but he actually managed to get a hit really well. Okay, he, he hit a grounder to third, he started pr- sprinting towards first base. And uh, for those of you who don't know how softball works, um, it's the defending team's job to get that ball that he's hit and throw it to first base before he gets there and get him out. But he's really hauling in these Teva sandals. He's really, like, all of us are really impressed at how fast this guy's running. And he actually hits the base about one or two seconds before the ball gets there. Our dugout just erupts in joy. We're like, he made it, he made it. But here's the problem. The umpire calling the game, there's only one of them. And he's at home plate calling balls and strikes. And so he really wasn't in a position to see what happened, and he called him out. And all of us were really upset about it, and, and we're, we're kind of raising hell over here. And, and we, but he's not listening to us because we have everything to gain by the call being overturned, right? And so really what needs to happen is the first baseman who is there and just experienced the whole play himself needs to look at the umpire and say, hey, he was safe, ump, you got it wrong, put him back on base. Um, but he didn't. He didn't do that. He kept his mouth shut. 
I mean, it was so egregious that one guy that was just watching the game just yelled at the first baseman. He said, hey, first baseman, you're supposed to tell the ump that he got it wrong and he was safe. Didn't you learn that in first grade, son? Called him son. That's great. That's great. You know, but he didn't. He kept his mouth shut and the out stayed and the game went on. He was acting deceitfully. That's a, that's a great illustration of what David means here by deceit. He was acting deceitfully. And this is a time, David's describing a time when he had sinned, he had missed the mark, and he kept his mouth shut. He didn't tell God what was going on. He kept his mouth shut and wanted to act deceitfully to try to cover over it himself. Um, And this is how he describes that experience. In verse three, he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Um, <clears throat> this, is, this is poetry. The Psalms, they're, they're not just written and just whatever this person felt like praying. It's actually prayers reworked into poetry that were eventually sung. Um, and what great poetry does is it takes the nuances of life that we typically gloss over and we don't see. It takes those nuances of life and it throws them in your face. But this is what great poetry does. Uh, we, uh, songs do this, but I mean, if, you, if you've ever been to a slam poetry meeting, um, this is, th- these are poets that are taking the, the nuances of life that you typically gloss over, whether it be in relationships, whether it be cultural tendencies, whether it be entire societal swings that are happening that we're usually not paying attention to, and it throws it in your face. And that's what David's doing here. He's taking an experience that he had and that all people have when they hide their sin and he's thrown it in our faces. He, he's, he's highlighting how unpleasant it was for him. And, and, and our culture really needs this highlighted for us because our culture is one of entertainment. We're always uh, numbing ourselves to the effects of hidden sin in our lives. We're always trying to keep up with uh, the sports teams, although Russell Wilson's great. Love Russell Wilson. Um, we're always keeping up with, with, with sports teams. We're always uh, working through that whichever show of Netflix that we're binge watching. And what this does is it distracts us from actually examining what's going on in our lives if we have hidden sin that we're hiding. And David uh, wants to make it very clear. He wants to let us all know what is actually causing this unpleasantness. What's causing him to waste away, his bones to waste away, his groaning all day long. What's causing this? And it's right there at the beginning of verse 4. It says, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Day and night, God's hand was heavy upon David. And, and this, is, this is talking about God's discipline of David. Another one of those pleasant categories that we love to talk about with our non-Christian friends. You know, hey, let's talk about God's discipline. Um, and, and the discipline of God is actually a, a concept that's been widely misapplied and misused throughout all of Christian history, unfortunately. And so I just want to be really careful when we're talking about the discipline of God this morning. Um, It turns out that uh, a lot of things have to align for some couples to have a child, and and them not being able to have a child uh, probably isn't the discipline of God in their lives for some hidden sin. It turns out that a a hurricane or two hits the Gulf Coast of of Mexico and uh, and um, the United States every year. And um, 
it probably isn't the, the discipline of God that Katrina smacked into New Orleans to try to get all of New Orleans to confess hidden sin. These are things that Christians have said that I've heard Christians say before in my life. And what I want to get really clear here is that it's really difficult to diagnose discipline in other people's lives. Um, there's a whole book in the Bible. It's called the book of Job. Um, it's about this man named Job. And what happens to Job is he loses everything in the course of a week. <laughs> everything. He's a very rich rancher. And uh, first day, all of his cattle dies. And the next day, or half of it dies, half of it gets stolen. Um, the, the next day, all of his children, um, they're all having dinner in, in the oldest son's house, and the wind blows over the house, it collapses and kills all of them. You know, there's like 10 kids. Um, and, then, and then after all that's happened, he's covered head to toe in boils. This is all in like two chapters, just right, right up front of the book of Job. It's like, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And you're like, man, Job's hitting a rough streak right now, you know? Um, and the rest of it, there's like 40 more chapters of this book. The rest of this book are Job's three friends coming to him and saying, hey, Job, you've sinned, obviously. God is disciplining you. Would you just confess your sin already to God? And Job's like, you know what? I lived a really confessing life to God before all this happened. I don't think that's it, guys. But there's 40 chapters of this. And eventually God shows up on the scene and he's like, hey, hold on. Give Job a break. I allowed this to happen because there's something beautiful that happens when my people cling to me, even when the blessings that come with me are, are taken away. There's something beautiful that brings me so much glory here on earth because it means that I'm the one that's valuable, not the things that come with me that are valuable. So chill out on Job. And so a, a great rule of thumb when it comes to the discipline of God is um, just worry about diagnosing it for yourself. Just worry about, just ask the question of, of yourself that goes like this, am I experiencing life, joy, and fulfillment right now? Or am I experiencing weakness, spiritual fatigue, burnout, decay, tiredness? And if you, if you answer that question, you're like, oh, I'm experiencing the latter, then it's time for another question. Do I have some unconfessed sin in my life? Is, is God actually disciplining me in this area here? Because you know what David found? He found that this was God's kindness towards him. David had this experience. Where he was experiencing so much spiritual fatigue and weakness and probably even some physical fatigue in there as well that he turned to God and he decided to confess his sin. Pick it up with me in verse five. Here it is. This is the key. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Confession. Confession. David hid his sin. It made him miserable. He experienced the discipline of God, and then he confessed his sin and started to experience life again. He's experienced the forgiveness of God, which is the first step of life again. And so this key of confession that opened the door for, to life again for David is, is so, um, so crucial to the Christian walk. But if you're anything like me, I, I, I kind of came into Psalm 32 a couple years ago, and if you're anything like I was, there's not, there, there may not be confession happening in your life right now. It's, it's not a, a point of your Christian walk to be like, and let's find all my sin and confess it to God. And that's because there's a couple um, of obstacles that are in our way. 
there's a couple obstacles that are in our way that get in the way of us confessing, okay? And I want to unpack both of those with you uh, this morning, or this evening, sorry, so I'm used to preaching in a morning church. I want to unpack both of those with you guys this evening um, so that we can move forward and perhaps have a chance to experience the same life that David did, all right? All right, so the, the obstacles. The first obstacle um, I call the intellectual obstacle. The intellectual obstacle. This obstacle says at its base, uh, this is an obstacle that, that Christians have, it, it, says, uh, it says that I don't need to confess my sins to God. What it does is it over-intellectualizes our walk with God. It takes what we know to be true about God, about Jesus, about the gospel, and it concludes, hey, you know what? God forgives all of the people who he calls his children. I don't need to confess that. But what Psalm 32 is telling us is that someone can be in right standing with God theologically, but they can be at odds with God relationally. Someone can be in right standing with God theologically, but be at odds with him relationally. So if it, marriage is a great example of how it works in our culture. Um, all, someone, all, all a couple has to do to be married is sign their, their names on a sheet of paper with a couple witnesses and submit it to the state of Washington, right? And to the state of Washington, they are married. But we all know that the, the level of joy and intimacy that the, that couple's going to experience in marriage is tied directly to how much they love, serve, and respect one another. And so they can be in the state of being married. They can have a clear definition of rights of, of, of being married, but they can be at odds with each other in that marriage relationship, right? So th- this is how a relationship works in general and with God. And so this is, that's the first that's the first obstacle that I want us to overcome. Perhaps, perhaps that, that's you, and maybe you've even said things like, why do Catholic people have to go into a box and confess their sins to a priest? Like, isn't that like really archaic? They just don't understand grace. Why are they confessing? God has forgiven you and extended grace over your sin. It's like, no, they've, they're pressing into their relationship with God because this is how relationships work, all right? So that's the intellectual obstacle. The second obstacle um, <clears throat> I want to go over here, I, I call the authenticity gospel, okay? And, and this, uh, this, or authenticity obstacle, not authenticity gospel, authenticity obstacle. And, and this obstacle um, goes something like this. It, it reduces our relationship with God to a couple of our culture's favorite words, um, authenticity and, gen, and being genuine. Uh, and I've, I've been a pastor for a while, so I, I've heard this argument several times. It seems to come up frequently, and it goes something like this. Um, in reality, in my life, I know that God's calling me to this uh, method of obedience, but I don't really want to do that. And so uh, that wouldn't be a really authentic thing for me to do. Isn't it better for me to be honest and genuine with God than legalistic? The word legalistic is usually always thrown in there, by the way. Isn't it better to be authentic and genuine with God than be legalistic in my relationship with him? Isn't that better? Um, And and what what I want to say to that is there is a thread of truth in that. The Christian faith is founded upon honesty. It, it it, It is part and parcel of what the gospel is, is to be honest. To be honest with God about what we do want to do and what we don't want to do. Okay, it's, 
I don't want to have a Bible reading plan. I don't want to pray. I don't want to confess. Those are okay things to say to God. Being honest in that is completely fine and, and heralded as truth of the gospel, okay? But what this does is it misunderstands what legalism actually is. Legalism is performing um, really our works of obedience towards God in an attempt to win his favor, in an attempt to win his favor. Legalism is not doing the works of God uh, in obedience to God that he's called you to do even when you don't want to do them. Uh, Legalism is when we do things for God in the hopes to win his favor and then uh, usually get something from him. This is, these are kind of the deals that sometimes we make in our heads. I'm even guilty of this. You know, God, like, if, if you give me this, I'll, I'll, I'll pray every morning for a week, or I'll pray every morning for a year, or I'll do that Bible reading plan. That I know. Like, that's a legalistic statement. I don't know if, if you recognize that. That's a legalistic statement, okay? And, and to be honest, this actually isn't how we treat any of our relationships that we care about. It's not how we treat any of our relationships how we care about. We all know deep down that our great relationships in our life, that they take work, that they take doing things that we don't want to do. Um, I hate cooking. I hate it. I hate it with the passion of a thousand dying sons. I I cannot stand cooking. When I was in my undergrad and and, in seminary, um, seminary is like a college for people who want to be pastor. Um, For seven years, I was a line cook at a Japanese restaurant. For seven years, I've cooked hundreds of thousands of dollars of Japanese food, okay? And it's five years later, and I still, I still don't like to cook. I still don't like to cook. But back in Denver, I would get home from work about 45 minutes before Christy would. She'd pick up the kids from daycare on the way home and bring them in. And I realized that if I cooked a dinner and had it ready for them when they got home, that it set our night up for so much joy and, ex- and, and positive experiences that when I did it, it, it just, it, it, the, the night just went better. Cook, cook and eat dinner right away. It means we can go on a walk, go get ice cream. It means we can play games. It means we can mess around a little bit. And so I did it. And so I did it. I mean, we all understand that, that the relationships that we care about take the hard work of things that we often don't want to do. And our relationship with God is no different. It's, it's no different. Um, and this is no more clearly seen than with confession. Maybe I'm just stubborn, but I actually never want to confess. <laughs> Confessing is hard. It's not something that I really ever want to do. Now, the, the more I do it and the more, uh, the more life I experience afterwards, it gets easier and easier. But there's still always that twinge in the beginning of, ah, confession. It's hard. Okay? No one ever wants to get confessed, but it does get easier. All right, so those are the two uh, obstacles that we have to push through, we have to get past as 21st century Americans. The intellectual one that says, I don't need to confess, and the uh, the authenticity one that says, I don't want to confess. We have to push through both of those so we can confess, and then that's the key that opens the door to life. All right, so now we're going to move on to to what that life actually looks like, okay? Uh, Confessions fruits here, and that's what what occupies David throughout the rest of this psalm here. Confessions fruits, okay? Um, In verse 5 there is the first one. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity 
of my sin. Forgiveness. David found forgiveness. Doesn't forgiveness feel great? Have you ever been forgiven for something that you obviously dropped the ball on? And then the person who you've wronged just looks at you and says, hey, it's okay. I forgive you. I forgive you. I started using that with Lucy, my, my daughter, you know, being like, hey, I forgive you, you know, because, like, I love it when, like, I experience forgiveness and people say that to me. I started using it with her, and now she's turned it on me, so, like, when I discipline her, and she looks at me afterwards, she, and she says, I forgive you, Daddy. And I'm like, jeez, oh, you're too smart. You're too smart. She just turns it right back on me, you know, um, but isn't that feeling great? Isn't that feeling great? The, the, the deep um, definition and grasping of forgiveness to the Hebrew is the concept of, of carrying something for someone else. That someone else has missed the mark and there's a whole bunch of, of crap that comes out of it. But then the person who's been wrong carries it themselves, picks it up and says, I forgive you, it's okay. I will carry the cost of that missing the mark. And, and uh, <clears throat> you see, David, he's experiencing this forgiveness and he's experiencing that joy of someone lifting uh, carrying the cost, like a lifting a burden off of his shoulders. But you know what? He actually never got to see how it worked. He probably offered a sacrifice uh, at the, uh, alongside this confession and alongside of whatever this, uh, this, this confession was, whatever sin it was tied to. But he never actually got to see how it worked. And we, didn't, we don't really get to see how it works until Jesus showed up on the scene, died, was buried, and rose again. And, and one of his disciples, John, wrote, wrote it out like this for us. Um, that we were going to put on the screen here. Yeah. John said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, when Jesus goes to the cross, he actually becomes that sacrifice to which all sin is laid on from anybody who's, who unites themselves in faith to him. All sin, past, present, future, is laid on Jesus on the cross, and he experiences he carries the cost of what those missing the marks actually entail. Um, at the, Jesus is, is crucified in the day, and at the end of the day, he's dead. He's dead. And um, one of his followers goes to the authorities at the time, and he says, hey, you know what? He's died. Can we take him off the cross and bury him tonight? And uh, the authorities are surprised. They're like, what? He's already dead? Like, they have to double-check by putting the spear in his heart to see if the water and blood has separated. They're surprised that he's died already because the cross was actually an instrument of torture that would take several days for someone to die, for someone to grow weary enough to lift themselves up, to get breath in their lungs, and so they would suffocate on there. And that's because Jesus on the cross didn't just experience the torture from the instrument that he was on, the torture of the cross. He actually experienced carrying the cost for sin of God's wrath and, and holiness against him. And it consumed him. It killed him. And so Jesus does that for us. He's the ultimate carrier of all sins. This is how forgiveness works. Our sins are imputed to Christ on the cross, and he experienced the cost that 
they took. All right, so forgiveness. That's, that's how forgiveness works, okay? And, and so that's the first fruit of confession. The second fruit is evangelism, is evangelism. Um, David actually goes into an evangelistic rant here in verse 6. He says, after his forgiveness, he says, after he's experienced forgiveness, he says, therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. He has a deep, deep desire for everybody to experience this forgiveness. But here's the, here's the, here's the thing he says. He says, there's a rush of great waters coming. This is the, the rush of great waters was the Hebrew idiom for judgment. Is the fact that God will come into the world and, and judge it, with it, which is another hard category. Um, we're just going through all of them today, guys. I'm sorry. Like, uh, if you're just new and checking out Christianity and considering Jesus for the first time, I'm sorry to put you through sin, confession, discipline, judgment, all, all these things. Like, that's a lot, right? Um, and unfortunately, we, we just preach through the passage as it's laid out here at Sedaris. Um, and uh, unfortunately, because all these things are in here, I can't really give all of them the due service and due duty, due diligence, I guess, that, that they really deserve. If they're just giving you more questions, that's okay. Just keep on coming back is what, what I would say, and keep on asking those questions. And I, I'm probably not able to unpack these uh, at length for you that is uh, really appropriate, and that's okay. That, that's all I want to say, okay? But David's talking about judgment here, and um, <clears throat> he's talking about how a rush of great water is coming when God will clean the world up again. God will take the world, and this water metaphor will wash it clean of all rebellion against him. And judgment's a hard thing to gut, a hard thing for us to understand in one of those hard categories. Um, do you know who it's not a hard category for? People who have experienced grave injustice in this world. People who have experienced genocide firsthand. People who have seen mass human trafficking. People who have been a part of mass human trafficking. The African American church in America, this is gonna be a broad brushstroke statement, but it's generally true, historically has never really had an issue with judgment and God's justice being executed. Those who have experienced grave injustice, they look at the judgment of God as coming as something that's hopeful. Yes, God's going to clean up this world again. Yes, we can exist in harmony. Yes, we can experience shalom once again. All right? So David, is, his, his fruit of confession is it a desire and a motive to evangelize, to bring people to experience that same forgiveness before the, the, the final judgment. All right? So evangelism, that's the second fruit. The, the third fruit here is safety. Safety. Pick it up for me in, uh, well, actually, first, there, there's an irony happening in this psalm that I don't know, perhaps you picked up on it. Um, at the beginning of the psalm, David says, uh, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. And then he explains an experience of him trying to cover his sin. But then when he confesses his sin, he says, I, will, I, will, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my sin. So there's this element throughout the psalm of sin can only be adequately covered, adequately covered by one person. Only one person can actually carry the cost of sins, and it's not human. It's, it's not humans. It's God. Only God can carry the sins. Only God can cover uh, sin and, and, and inequity here. And, and this kind of wordplay finds its apex here in verse 7, when David says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from times of trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. 
So David tried to hide his sin, but then he found that when God hid his sin, that God became his hiding place. I think this is how sin works. When we have unconfessed sin in our lives, we feel that if we're going to bring it up with God, um, that's actually pretty scary. In our minds, we see God as some prosecutor, that once we bring up our unconfessed sin, what's going to happen is he's going to turn into our prosecutor. But when, in fact, when we confess sin, God turns into our protector. He surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. He says, I've carried the cost for this child. He's mine. He is delivered, or she is delivered, and I carry the cost. God moves from our, <laughs> he moves to our protector instead of our, our prosecutor here. Okay, so that, that, that's the, the third fruit, safety and security in God again. The fourth fruit here is instruction. Um, and in verse eight, now we see God picking up the microphone in this prayer. God is the one that's talking. This is how prayer works. Often it's a back and forth. We, I think you've probably heard that said about prayer. Here's a, here it's actually happening. We have a back and forth nature of prayer right here in Psalm 32. God picks up the microphone in verses eight and nine. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Instruction. Um, I think part of us, because of whether it's the way we were raised or the, the way that we ourselves exist, we, um, we expect punishment when we confess our sins. That, that, that's how it happened in, in my home growing up, you know, like, it comes out that you've missed the mark to your parents, and then there's punishment, whether that be grounding or timeout or what, whatever that was for you, there is, there's an element of consequences or punishment attached to it. But with God, that's not the case at all. The discipline part is before getting you to confess your sins, but once confession happens, it's met with instruction, not punishment. It's met with instruction. Um, so when we go to God and, and we confess being really obsessed with our, our, our image and how we put, we're portrayed to others, God meets you with instruction on how to find yourself on, the, on your identity in Christ. When we confess lying to God, he, he starts to work with you with some instruction of getting behind, hey, why are the reasons that you lied? And we offer you instruction. When we uh, confess improper sexual thoughts, God offers instruction of how to curb your lustful heart. You see, like, God, our confession is the tool by which we start to grow and gain the instruction for God, instruction from God. And when we confess to a life of no confession, God gives us instruction that's right here in verse nine. It's God speaking. He says, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit or brittle or it will not stay near you. Um, the bit or the, the brittle um, it's actually a metaphor for God's discipline that we already talked about here. It would sit on the gums of a horse or uh, any pack animal, and uh, the, the rider to steer it in the right direction would, would pull on the reins, and that would pull this bit down into the gums, and the, the horse would go in the direction that the rider wants to go. And so what God is saying here is saying, he's saying, hey, I don't want to discipline you. I, I do not like doing that. I, I do not take joy in it. I do not want to do that. And so the, the base of this instruction is establish patterns in your life where you're regularly reflecting on ways that you've missed the mark and confessing those to God. Best practice here is just at the ever, end of every day to ask, how have I missed the mark today? How have I done that? How have I missed the mark? 
You'll be surprised. He's like, oh, that, 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 that. Several things will come to mind. And, and take some time to confess those to God, and you'll gain some instruction right there on the spot. That's best practice here, and that's instruction for those of us who need help confessing. Establish patterns and rhythms in your life where you can be reflective of it and then confess the ways that you've missed the mark. Okay? So that's, that's the, the fourth fruit, instruction. Um, and the final one is joy. In verse 10, we already read it together, but let's read it again. David says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Confession gives us intense, intense experience of forgiveness with God and attune and accurate instruction into our lives. And this brings great joy. When we have those two things, there's so much joy attached to that, so much that that David's calling us to be glad and rejoice. In fact, I would even say that you're not done confessing, you're not done in that time until you're rejoicing. Times of confession end in praise. They end in praise. They do. Um, And so what we're going to do tonight as Nolan and the band comes back up here, what we're going to do tonight is is we're going to do a song of confession. We're going to do a song of confession together. Um, and in that song, that this may be a new, it's a new song for Sedaris, and this may be a, a new song for you. Um, but these psalms, they, we're, we're, we good back there? Okay. But, but, oh, it does, cool. But, but these psalms, what they, what they were, their prayers turned into poetry that then were in turn turned into compositions that were sung by the believing community of Israel. And so as an extension of, of God's church in this world, we also want to, to I, I thought it'd be really fun if we could do this together as well, to sing a psalm of confession, okay? And it, it, it could feel a little bit heavy to you, and I just want to say that's okay. I would invite you to join in once you get the melody down, you know? Um, and it could feel a, a little bit heavy, but throughout this last worship set, what we're going to do is we're actually going to lighten it and lighten it and lighten it, and by the end, we're going to be rejoicing in the praise. Uh, we're going to be rejoicing in the grace of God.